You're listening to the Hearing the Voice lecture series. The following lecture was recorded on the 4th of June 2015 and features Professor Charles Fernyhoe on the voices in our heads. If you'd like to learn more about our research into voice hearing or simply keep in touch with us on a more regular basis, you can visit our website hearingthevoice.org or tweet us at hearingvoice. Yes, here I am wrapping up the um, seminar series. You might think it's because it's perfectly, the topic is perfectly placed to sum everything up, but actually I think I just did a better job of avoiding it until now. But what, what I did, when I, when I said yes to the, the invitation, I did think that this book would be finished, I'd have a really nice story to tell, I'd be getting into publicity mode and already going radio to talk this stuff. <laughs> It definitely isn't finished, and a lot of this stuff is still work in progress, um, and I'm really looking forward to hearing what we, what we think about that. So I'm interested in the ordinary voices in our heads, and I'm interested in the more unusual voices of voice hearing. And I want to do four things. First, talk about, give you a bit of background on inner speech and voice hearing and the research thereon, and how people are trying to bring these two things together. And then focus on three questions that are particularly interesting to me at the moment. One is about the ubiquity of inner speech and what it is that we're doing when we say we're doing inner speech. One is about applying models of inner dialogue to voice hearing and whether that gets us anywhere. And finally, to think about the complicated relations among voice hearing, inner speech and memory. So what do we mean by inner speech? What do we mean by voice hearing? Essentially, inner speech refers to the conversations that go on in our heads, the stream of consciousness, the verbal stream of consciousness that many people report when they reflect on their own experience. And as a developmental psychologist, which is where I started out, I was interested in three, three questions around this, this topic. Where does this language, this voice in our head come from? What is it doing there? What functions does it serve? And what is it like? its phenomenology. And the most interesting writings for me in this respect were those of uh, Vygotsky, who flourished in the 20s and 30s before his very uh, early and unt untimely death. Vygotsky's ideas about this were very simple, in one sense. Uh, he thought the baby started off in engaged in social interactions from very early on, and they were engaging, they were communicating either through gestures or speech with adults and other children very early on, and the social dialogue through a process of internalisation turned into a phase known as private speech, which is where children are talking to themselves out loud, so you can hear it, and the psychologist can listen in and code what the child is saying and analyse it and so on. And then there's a bit more internalisation, and that private speech turns into inner speech. So this is where the voice in the head comes from. It starts as social dialogue, it moves through a phase of private speech, and then it becomes inner speech. Crucially, along the way, there are these processes of uh, transformation, particularly abbreviation. So the language, those dialogues that become internalised are also changed. They become uh, transformed, they become condensed, stripped down, uh, and turned into something much more like a kind of note form version of the external language. So at this point, I often show a video of my daughter Athena, which I'm not going to show again because I know you've all seen it several times over. But just as a reminder, at this, in this clip, 
she says things to herself like, I need some cars, and then immediately answers the utterance with something like, two cars. So she, it's as if she's posing herself a question and then immediately answering it. But also, when she says two cars, she's showing some of the abbreviation that people have noticed in private speech and in her speech. She's not saying, I need two cars, she just says, two cars. So it's this stripped down, condensed, telegraphic version of the external language. So I've argued over the last um, 20 years that this view of inner speech carries certain really important implications. One is that if Vygotsky is right, inner speech should have dialogue quality. It should be like an external dialogue. It should be like people talking to each other, except it's going on in the head. Another is that there should be different kinds of inner speech, and in particular, I've argued for a distinction between what I call expanded inner speech, which is where, when I think about my own experience, I'm often conscious of talking to myself at length in full sentences, answering those sentences with full sentences, and it's a real sort of classic to and fro conversation. But there are other kinds of inner speech, possibly the predominant form, is where that, those processes of abbreviation have got to work, and everything is much more stripped down, condensed, telegraphic. We'll come back to that distinction a few times uh, in what's to follow. And finally, that there should be the possibility of moving between these different levels of speech, both developmentally as the child develops, but also within adulthood. So we can all move between these different levels of speech. And this was my attempt to, re to basically just invert that diagram I've just shown you. Uh, we're starting at the bottom with social speech, we're moving up to private speech, and it's the same, except inner speech is split into these two forms, expanding inner speech and condensed inner speech. And the arrow is really just there to show that we can move between them. So sometimes we're doing some condensed, and then in a certain situation we might switch to doing expanded. We might switch to talking ourselves out loud, which, which we do, which lots of people report to doing, even in adulthood. How can we study inner speech? Well, this is a clip from Mel Gibson's 2000 movie, What Women Want, where he has this amazing power to left me to read people's minds. Only women's minds, which is slightly creepy. Um, we can't do what Mel does, which is just peer into women's minds and, and hear, overhear what they're thinking. But what we can do are things like individual differences studies, where you look at differences between people in how much private or speech they use, and connect that to certain capacities. You can do what psychologists call dual task paradigms, which is where you give someone a task which you think might involve inner speech, and then you give them a second task to do at the same time, which is intended to knock out the capacity to do inner speech. Um, and if you find that that first task is affected by your inner speech being knocked out, you can learn something about the importance of inner speech for that task. You can simply ask people, you can give them questionnaires, self-importance rooms and say, what is your speech like, how much do you do? You can use different forms of experience sampling, we'll focus in on one of them in a, in a, in a second. And there are various neuroscientific methods you can use. Neuroimaging, neurostimulation, neuropsychology, which is the discipline where people study the effects of brain damage. You can study, there have been some studies showing that particular kinds of brain damage lead to language problems, which lead to inner speech problems, and then you can ask, are those people with that kind of disability affected <coughs> in certain cognitive tasks? <coughs> so there is quite a lot you can do. I reviewed some of it for an article for New Scientist a year or so ago. 
Uh, but I think the ultimate demonstration is that you can have a science in a speech. Is this paper that Andrew has just kindly mentioned. I think the question of whether you can be scientific about in a speech is answered thoroughly in the affirmative. 34,000 words says, yes, you can. <laughs> 250 odd references. There's an awful lot out there, isn't there, Ben? <laughs> to, that is relevant to this question. There's a huge amount of research on this topic, much more than there would have been. 10 or 20 years ago. So it is a growing area. So there's a recognition that you can get scientific about this stuff, and that's a, a good thing as far as I'm concerned. Give you a flavour of some of the research that we've been doing on this topic. I mentioned that the Vygotsky view holds that there should be different kinds of inner speech. What is the evidence for that? Well, Simon and I produced the first study of this um, a few years ago where we developed this thing called the Varieties of Inner Speech Questionnaire and the ISQ. We gave people in the, in the first instance a whole bunch of statements about their own speech. Like, I talk to myself in, in a, a kind of back and forth conversational style, or when I talk to myself, it seems to be stripped down and condensed and uh, made form like. We found that four factors fell out of this analysis. There seemed to be some support for the idea that inner speech is sometimes condensed, similarly for, for it having a dialogic form. An interesting one was that other people appeared in people's inner speech quite a lot. People would endorse, it wasn't particularly common, but some people would endorse statements suggesting that other people's voices appear in their inner speech. And then, as you might have predicted, there was also a thread which related to evaluative and motivational kinds of inner speech. So people saying to, <coughs> saying to themselves things like, that was stupid. Uh, in that study, we were interested in how that related to tendency to have auditory hallucination-like experiences. These were typical undergraduates, so they weren't um, mentally ill, they, they just had a tendency to have unusual experiences. We found that the dialogic factor predicted their susceptibility to uh, voice-hearing-like experiences, but nothing else. And then Ben led a study in, uh, published last year where we replicated the means and reliability for the VISQ. In other words, those four factors do fall out again in the same sort of way. And this time, we were interested in the role of dissociation mediating the kind of inner speech you have and your tendency towards auditory hallucinations. And we found, we found some evidence that dissociation was involved there. So what does this all mean for voice hearing? Well, there's a model that's developed over a number of decades really, probably going back to 1978 and Feinberg, but even further back than that probably, where a very simple idea about why people hear voices when there is no And it, it is simply that the, the, the model holds that what happens in a situation is that you generate some inner speech, but for some reason you don't realise that it's you who generates it. So this bit of inner speech appears in your head, Ordinarily, you would recognise it as your own inner speech, but something happens, something changes, something goes wrong, and the person who hears the voice doesn't recognise it as their own inner speech. So a very simple um, neuroscientific model holds that there's a bit of the brain, we're looking at left inferior frontal gyrus or gropus area, very roughly, which generates the inner speech, just like, just like it generates external speech. There's a bit of the brain, again, very sketchy uh, and generalised anatomically, but uh, in the uh, mathematical way, um, which is involved in speech perception. Usually what happens is that this bit of the brain 
tips off this bit of the brain and says, I've just done some inner speech, I did it, we did it, don't worry about it, pay no attention. So it's like it's known as an efference copy uh, in neuroscientific research. And it's like this bit of the brain saying, don't listen to what's coming because you did it, it's not important. And, the, and one, of the, one of the useful, um, quite well supported models of this is that something goes wrong with that process. Something goes wrong with the process whereby the inner speech <coughs> generation bit tips off the speech perception bit. And there are various reasons why that might happen, some interesting findings relating to that. But that's the basic, that's the basic idea. But my problem with this, when I came to it as a developmental psychologist, some time was ago, so, was that people were talking about inner speech, and I was talking about inner speech as, from a, as a developmentalist, but were we talking about the same thing? I was curious to know whether their inner speech, that they were talking about in clinical psychology and psychiatry, was the same as my inner speech. And it be, quickly became apparent that they weren't making the same sorts of distinctions as I wanted to make among different kinds of inner speech. So, no distinction in any of these models between expanded and condensed inner speech, no sort of influence of Vygotsky and their theorising about inner speech, including the, the question of whether inner speech is, has a dialogic quality. And that in turn forces a rethink of some of the neuroimaging findings. Some of the most important uh, neuroimaging research on inner speech was actually triggered by an interest in, in auditory verbal hallucination. So people were putting people into the scanner because they wanted to know why people were hearing voices. And a lot of this research, this, what we know about the neuroscience of inner speech, stemmed from that. <clears throat> but none of that work thought about different kinds of inner speech, and in particular, in these tasks, what, what people do is they stick people in the scanner and say, do some inner speech. But what kind of inner speech are you asking people to do? If, you, if there are different kinds of inner speech, then it really matters what you're asking them to do in that task. And another issue that um, we pointed out was that none of these models take into account the fact that inner speech carries on in these different forms. And when somebody's simply lying there in what we call the baseline in neuroimaging research, not doing the task, or not doing the bit of generating the inner speech they've been told to generate, they might still be doing it. They might be doing it in a condensed form. So <clears throat> we, we questioned whether a lot of this neuroimaging research was actually valid. And we'll see some ways in a minute which we've tried to, uh, to build on and develop uh, and do a better job really with neuroimaging. So in that 2004 paper, which is really the first thing I did in this area, I proposed that we need to take these ideas seriously. We need to think about different kinds of inner speech. And specifically, I pointed to the, the, the transition between condensed inner speech and expanded inner speech as a particularly important, a kind of flashpoint at which voice hearing might occur. So I argued that AVHs or auditory verbal hallucinations might occur when condensed inner speech is transformed into expanded inner speech. That there might be a particular problem when people are under stress or cognitive challenge and that the result was basically this dialogue between different voices suddenly blooming into consciousness. So there's to and fro between different points of view, different voices, suddenly blooming into consciousness, and that was basically the raw material appearing voices. And I argued that this accounted for what Lawyer and Thomas uh, referred to as the alien yet self uh, quality of voice hearing. So people who hear voices 
will very often say it feels alien, it feels like it's not me. And yet, at some level, I know it's come from me. I know it is of me. And diagrammatically, this is just the diagram you've seen before, and this is simply highlighting the bit, the kind of flashpoint, where um, voice hearing might occur. So I just want to park that model there and say we're going to come back to it. There are certain things about the model which work, certain things about it which don't work. And what I want to do next is focus on three questions that are, have been occupying me and my colleagues in the last um, few years, and then come back to the model and see where it's going, where, what the next 10 years of the model might hold. <coughs> so the first question is about ubiquity as a speech. If you ask a philosopher or some psychologists, you will hear them say, like Bernard Barr's has done, we are at it all the time. We are doing a speech all the time. Barr's calls it a constant of consciousness. Jackendorf uh, argues that, in, that thinking is highly verbal, for many of us it's going on all the time. Carruthers thinks of you know, utterances in a speech, in inner speech as the primary vehicles of our conscious thoughts. And it goes way back to Wittgenstein in the investigations where he argued that language, natural language, is itself a vehicle of thought. We need to be really, really careful. So one caveat is that if you start off with these bold claims about how much inner speech is going on, then you're not going to really do a very good job of reporting on how much inner speech is actually going on, because your preconceptions about the occurrence of the experience will colour how good you are at reporting on it. And another massive problem is that the term thinking keeps coming up. The term thinking should be avoided. It should be banned, actually, under the European Convention, and we should never use it, because it is so messy and we to stand so many um, wrong paths. But basically, what we're trying to avoid is having pointless conversations about whether thinking is verbal, because we need to get much more sophisticated. How can we go about measuring the um, frequency and the quality of inner speech? Well, a study that uh, Ben and I have done recently, we developed a smartphone app with Inner Life, which asks questions about what inner speech is like. You put it on your iPhone, there's a welcome screen, you set the time you want the thing to go off. And then it gives you questions. In this case, it's just one of the items from the VISQ. And we were able to ask people, both generally, what is your inner speech like? But also, at a particular moment of an alert, of a beep, of a random probe, what was, your, what was going on for you just before that beep went on? And we don't actually get um, effective measures of frequency of inner speech through the app as it is, but we're hoping a, new, uh, a, new, a future version of it will allow us to do that. But what we found in this study was looking at the looking at how the trait ratings of inner speech matched up with the state ratings. So what I mean by the trait ratings is what you do when you're asked about your inner speech generally. What kind of inner speech do you do generally? That's known as trait. But state means what was going on for you in that state. That moment, however long it was, just before the beat went And we looked at the correlations between what you say about your inner speech in a trait sense and what you say about it moment by moment as you're being built. We found that most subtypes of inner speech did correlate. But interestingly, uh, when people were answering questions to do with trait, they were endorsing things more highly than they were when they were asked, answering about state. 
which I think supports the idea that we do come to this with some preconception. We come to this with some ideas of what kind of minds we have. And people who are interested in saying, you know, you, you find people talking to you and saying things like, yeah, I'm a really verbal thinker, I think in any speech all the time. Equally, other people say to me, oh no, I never, I, I'm a visual thinker, I think in images, implying that they don't use much uh, in speech. So there's something about those preconceptions, I think, emerge even in that study. They emerge much more strongly in with this method than as descriptive experience sampling. And our colleague Russ Herbert has argued, using this method, that all you're doing really when you use questionnaires like ours is assessing people's self-theoretical preconceptions about their experience rather than their actual experience. And this has led to a really fascinating collaboration because we started off, Ben and I and others being seeing the value of questionnaires and self-report instruments. Russ basically saying, none of that stuff tells you anything we know. And we're continuing to work together, and I think in quite an interesting way, coming to a sort of uh, more developed view of it. <clears throat> so how does the beeper work? What you do is you wear this thing on your belt, attached to your clothing in some way. There's an earpiece that goes off. And every so often it beeps. And you are trained, basically, over a period of days to make quick notes to yourself in whatever form you like when the beep goes off at, about what was going on for you just before the beep went off. And then you go, the next day you go for an interview, led by Russ and um, Ben and I taking part in, in several beeps as well, um, where you're asked in detail about each of those beeps, each of those moments of experience. And you rubbish at it in the first day, the first couple of days, but you get better at it, and by the end of it, you get the hang of reporting in great detail on your own experience. The interesting thing, though, is when you do DES, you find much less in a speech than people like Bars and Jacobov would say. So Russ's best estimate, based on the many years of DES he's done, is that about 23% of samples include in a speech. That means most of the time they're not doing in a speech, according to DES. 23% a fifth or a quarter is still quite a lot, but not nearly as much as the Carruthers and the Wittgensteins of this world would have. So this is a real paradox, and I'm interested in it, and I'll come back in a second to, to why that might be the case. As I say, we've been collaborating with Russ using this method, and uh, a summer or two ago, we got the chance to, to run a study in Berlin at the Max Planck. And this, I'm going to talk about a couple of things that have come out of the study. This is a horribly complicated diagram, which basically just shows you what our participants, our brain participants, went through. They started off by having a standard resting state scan, in other words, we stuck them in a scanner, left them for a few minutes, and gathered standard resting state data. Uh, we also gave them some standard elicited uh, in a speech tasks. In other words, we, we asked them to do the standard thing that we do in an inner speech task, you know, to say to yourself a particular word or sentence or whatever. They did that right at the beginning. Then they learned how to do DES and they did it for a week in their own natural environment. So they were wandering around Berlin, getting the U-Bahn or whatever, the beep would be going off, they'd be making their notes, they'd be coming into the Max Bank, we'd be interviewing them. We did that for four or five days for each of them. So that by the end of it, they were good at doing DES. The second week, we did the same thing, but we did it in the scan. So they went into the scanner for 25 minutes of resting state scans. They were being beeped in the scanner. 
it was rigged up so that they could write in the scanner, they could make those quick notes about their experience. We then pulled them out of the scanner, took them across the corridor, interviewed them about those beeps, stuck them back in the scanner, did another 25 minutes, and we did that for several days. So by the end of it, we've got, for each participant, 225 minutes of resting state data, and for each of them, 36 beeps. 36 incredibly detailed moments of experience. So this was a, it's a fascinating body of data that we're still trying to work out what to do with. But we've done a couple of things with it. One of the first paper that we published really was just showing that we that this thing works. You can integrate these two really powerful methods. And in this case, it was a single case study. We just had one participant. And we've, she was interesting because she had an experience which not all participants show, which is called inner hearing. So Russ distinguishes a kind of inner speech experience where you feel as if you're, there's inner speech going on, but you are generating it, you are making it. And another kind of inner speech experience where you are, it's as if you're hearing yourself speak, as if you are listening to your voice being played back on the tape recorder. And it calls it inner hearing. And this is a comparison for this participant of, of inner speaking versus inner hearing. It doesn't really mean much neuroscientifically because it's only one participant. It does make sense in terms of the kind of activations you would expect to see, but we're certainly not generalising anything about how in how the hearing uh, happens in the brain. The second study is, is more interesting, I think. This is exactly the same schematic that you've just, just seen showing how the study worked. But this time, focus on the, those task-elicited um, scans that we, did, uh, uh, that we did at the beginning, where we're asking people to generate inner speech. They're doing it on demand right at the beginning. And then these moments of rest and state uh, scan in the second week. And what we wanted to do in this study is say, previous studies have given us some idea of what inner speech looks like when it's been elicited. In other words, you're doing it because you've been told to do it. But what does inner speech look like when it happens spontaneously? When you're not told to do it, you're just doing it because you want to do it or you need to do it or it just happens. So we distinguish between elicited inner speech, which is this task-driven stuff at the beginning, and spontaneous inner speech, which is stuff that happened and that we were able to capture using DES. And again, we only have five participants, but we have quite strong effects. We focused on two areas of interest in the brain. This is left inferior frontal gyrus, or that, speech, that inner speech generation area that I showed you earlier, known as Broca's area, roughly. And we focused on Heschel's gyrus bilaterally, which is known through previous studies to be involved in auditory perception. And we find this really fascinating kind of double dissociation. If you look at what people are doing when they're asked to do some inner speech, exactly as you predict, this part of the brain starts activating. And this part of the brain, which is involved in auditory perception, is, is not doing anything. But when people are doing a speech spontaneously, when they just happen to be doing a speech, when we capture it using DES, you get totally the opposite pattern. You don't get anything for Broca's area, but you get quite a lot for Heschel's giants. So the two, they're opposite patterns of activation, basically, between doing a speech because you've been told to do it, and doing a speech as it happens naturally. Now, there's all sorts of implications of that if this holds up with future studies and so on. For one thing, we should start getting it published because it undermines a huge amount of what goes on in cognitive psychology. A lot of cognitive psychology is based on assuming 
that you can ask someone to have an experience and they will have it. I mean, it will be something like what happens in reality. This is saying, actually, hold on, that isn't necessarily the case. And so, you know, if, if, if the, the implications of this for inner speech are pretty uh, big, but if the same thing applied to generating visual imagery, for example, there's a lot of studies that ask people to go in the scanner and produce a visual image of something. If the same thing applies there, then those studies are called into question. So I think this is, although it's a small study, I think it's a really interesting one. <clears throat> I want to focus now on the philosophical, I think, implications of all this and ask a bold question, which I think is absolutely clear in DDS, and I think Russ, for example, is very clear that he is, in fact, answering this question. Is it possible to be mistaken about your own experience? And the reason DDS asks this question, poses this question, it's because it gives quite different findings <coughs> on certain things compared to questionnaires. So, for example, DES, as we've seen, rates the incidence of declared speech quite low. It also doesn't pick up a huge amount of condensation and dialogicality, which we find in our questionnaire happens quite a lot. So the two methods are diverging. We've argued um, that DES might miss some aspects of this for various reasons. One is that perhaps people, including DES investigators, come into it with certain preconceptions about what kind of thing can count as in a speech. And something like condensed in a speech might just not show up on the radar, so DES wouldn't pick it up. Russ wholeheartedly disagrees with us on that. Um, and that's an example of how that's a, a really interesting ongoing conversation about it. I think also, again, Russ would disagree that DES sets the bar quite high you've got to do quite you've got to have a really clear you've got to be able to report in verbatim sense exactly what the inner speech was before DES was saying that was inner speech and I think that's quite tough but again, as I said that's a kind of rumbling conversation and my thoughts about how to address that conversation at the moment and you know, how to take the conversation on but focusing on different levels of experience so if I asked you are you do, doing inner speech I think there are three levels that you could one, and, and they vary according to the temporal grain of when we're focusing on. So if you're thinking at the level of minutes, we're up here. If your temporal grain is at the level of milliseconds, we're down here. And so um, this will become clearer as I tell you about the three different levels. I think the first level is a kind of self-theoretical. What kind of mind do I have? Well, then I'll tell you what I'm doing in this picture. And I think it's at this level, self-report questionnaires like the VISQ probably work. So you're asking, what, what sort of attitudes do I have about my own experience? What sort of beliefs do I have about my experience? What are my traits? What kind of mind do I have? The second level, I would link to Dan Dennett's ideas about how language in the head can spin this kind of internal narrative, what he calls the Joycean machine, the stream of verbal consciousness that mix together so a self-narrative level, which I think possibly things like probed experience sampling, the kind that we do within our life with the app, might get up. And then I think there's a level even further down, at the level of milliseconds, which I'll call concrete, where you're operating at such a fine grain, temporally speaking, that that self-narrativization of the Joycean machine, the Dennett machine, can't get any traction. 
because you're talking about such tiny moments of experience. That knitting together of this going on isn't getting any traction. So that's the level at which DES works. And that might be why DES underestimates. You don't see much inner speech going on in DES. And I think there's another thing going on, which I which takes which was going to need a lot more thinking through. I'm really pleased that I'm going to be presenting on this um, Sam in, in Granada. Um, and Felicity will be there as well in a few weeks' time. So Sam will be able to help me with all the difficult philosophical problems before I get out to speak. But I think what might be going on is something that I would call automatic expansion. And that is that as soon as you focus on your as soon as you focus your attention on your experience, that condensed in a speech becomes expanded. And that DES might bypass a lot of that, a lot of that experience. At this level, we are experiencing in a speech, but DES doesn't get it because it requires this process of automatic expansion. So when, when you say I'm doing in a speech, you could be answering that question on, on any of these levels. Here's a bit more about what I mean by automatic expansion. It's an example from Melanie in this book. An entire book based on the DES sampling of one participant moment. And she had what I'm calling a fast inner utterance. In other words, she had a thought which unfolded, which due to things happening outside, she knew unfolded, happened really, really quickly. But it was a really, really long thought. And so she was faced with this puzzle of how a really, really long thought had happened in such a short period of physical time. And she described it as. It didn't feel compressed when she was having a thought. It didn't feel rushed or jammed into all this small time, like it sometimes does when someone speaks to people. And you see the same thing happening in other reports of people's experience. It's as if they've had a really long thought. You can try to say it in words. It would take you quite a long time. But you know, because of certain external things that allow you to time the thought, that it happened incredibly quickly. So I wonder whether this is an example of automatic expansion, whether well, attending to one's own inner experience triggers automatic expansion in some cases. Sometimes DES picks up on it, sometimes it doesn't, and that might be a, a reason why there's so much, so much less inner speech in DES. Now, we can take a rather different view on exactly the same topic. Here's some condensed inner speech. This is Leopold Bloom. Um, Wondering what to get for breakfast as he pops out in the morning in Dublin and asking Molly, his wife, if she wants anything. Classic bit of uh, Joyceian, particularly Bloomian in a dialogue. But I think in, in a speech, in a monologue, it's often called, but I think it's actually in a dialogue. Must get those settled, really. Pity, all the way from Gibraltar. Wonder what her father gave for it, old style. Oh, yes, of course, bought it at the governor's auction. He's asking himself questions and he's answering them. He's also showing that condensation and telegraphic quality of inner speech that I've argued um, goes on. And Marco's been doing some really fascinating work on this topic. I love this, I love this photo, isn't it great? Where he's looking at... Um, we're, we're, we're writing a paper together on this, so starting with the, the view that Joycean inner speech, that can be an example from Bloom, is often dialogic and condensed. But Marco's been taking this further and arguing that actually, if Joyce had tried to depict condensed in a speech in the other works, 
he would have even fewer readers than he has actually, he's quite a lot of readers, but a lot of people find Joyce difficult. Those people would find Joyce even more difficult if he was depicting condensed in speech. So in actually what, what Joyce is depicting is something that is half expanded, something that is <coughs> in transition from condensed to expanded. I'm really talking about Marco's ideas there, so I'm not going to say anything more, because he'll, he'll expand, I'm sure, in, um, in, in his own words, when you get, uh, if you ask him about it. But really, the, what, what Marco has been working on most recently, and this is completely fascinating, and I think amounts to a, a new theory of reading. So um, expect some questions in the, in the pub later on. Okay, so that's the end of uh, that little bit. Um, I want to say a little bit about um, voice hearing, and then come on to try and put it so we've seen some ways in which inner speech relates to voice hearing and how it's been used as a model for why voice hearing might happen. And what I want to do now is ask whether a model of voice hearing as in a dialogue can help us understand and unpick some of the um, puzzles about this. Something which, as we all know, um, is often taken as a sign of severe mental illness, including schizophrenia, but attends a whole range of other psychiatric conditions. But also, crucially, happens to a lot of people who are not ill, has important significances across cultures and across history. And I, I've been thinking about the kind of attention that we've been having as a project, not just the fascination about voices, so this thing of being able to covering our research this uh, quarter, the Lancet, the Spiegel, Guardian, the Reddit thing that a few of us did earlier in the year, but also the public engagement, the various, many wonderful public engagement um, activities we've been doing. I think there's a real interest, not just in voice hearing as a phenomenon, but in the way that we're going about looking at voice hearing. It's a, the interdisciplinary approach, the, the attempt to understand voice hearing from lots of different perspectives. And I wanted to say something about how, for me as a researcher, this interdisciplinary process has worked and flourished. How, by think, by putting myself in the shoes of another discipline, I've been able to rethink the work that I've been doing. And in terms of um, getting out of your comfort zone through crossing interdisciplinary, crossing disciplinary boundaries, there's no greater leap um, or uncomfortableness for a cognitive psychologist than to start doing medieval literature. <laughs> uh, but do medieval literature I've been doing, thanks to the wonderful Corin Saunders, who's been helping me with it. And we've been thinking in particular about the book of Marjorie Kemp. Famous as the first autobiography in English, it's also an extraordinary document of many experiences that we would like to voice here. Um, Kemp was writing in the early 15th century, the book exists in one manuscript, dated from around 1440. This is it. I saw it. That's not my thumb. That's the thumb of the curator in many more manuscripts of the But we saw it as part of discussions to try and get it for the um, exhibitions that are coming up on the way. So Marjorie had some whole range of experiences, and one of the most interesting things is the variety of the experiences she reports. In her book, she basically describes, in the third person, she refers to herself 
as she was this creature. But she's talking about herself, and she describes the things that happens to her, the spiritual experiences that happen to her um, as she goes about her ordinary bourgeois life, but also turns more, then turns more and more to, to those spiritual ways. So she hears clear external speech. This is my attempt to make medieval bubble. So she hears uh, Christ saying, Daughter, why have you forsaken me and I never forsook you? She hears auditory utterances that are non-verbal. So she hears the sound of the Holy Spirit, for example, as if it had been a pair of bellows blowing in her ear. And she talks about herself in third person, but she really means in my ear. Before we go to Oxford College, you're going to have to tell me how to pronounce all this stuff properly. She hears auditory but non-human sounds, and then our Lord turn that sound into the voice of a dove. And she has multi-sensory experiences. So one of her earliest experiences is, is of, of seeing Christ sitting on her bed. And, and she gets a visual image, clad in a mantle of purple silk, sitting on her bedside. And the range of Marjorie's experiences really connect with the, the range of experiences that contemporary voice hearers report as documented in the study that Angela led, published earlier this year in Lancet Psychiatry, where we found a huge variety of experiences and very complex experiences, voices mixed with thoughts, voices with accompanying sensory characteristics and so on. And I think that's, that's one of many reasons we've been really interested in how these experiences are reported such a long time ago. But what I wanted to do in particular is focus on the comment that Barry Rindiak made at the end of an essay recently, where he says it is time to read Marjorie Kemp's inner voices as a projection of her own spiritual understanding of divine interaction with her, and hence as an insight into her own mentality. Before I put the answer this quote, I wouldn't come across it otherwise, but I find it completely compelling and fascinating. Because to me as a psychologist, it's saying, what are the cognitive processes involved in, to quote Windiat again, a praying mind talking to itself? Does it get us anywhere to think about voice hearing in um, this context as, as an internal dialogue rather than something else? So a typical way of thinking about these spiritual experiences is as, as the sort of passive reception of messages from outside or beyond. The trouble with that is that you either have to posit a supernatural entity, which scientists won't be on the whole too keen to do, or you actually need to kind of reductionism, because you're saying that the individual is completely passive, it's taking in this kind of information, and that's the basis of the experience. It doesn't give any credence or credit to the, the active dialogic uh, processes involved. So instead, what Winniat's uh, phrase prompts me to do is think about Kemp's experiences as the products of a mind in dialogue. When she's hearing God, she's actually having a dialogue with herself. So Corin and I are working this out. It will ultimately be a paper, but in the short term it's going to be uh, a talk at this conference coming up in Oxford, where we've actually been asked to give a plenary panel on hearing voice. They were so interested in what we were doing that we were doing a whole show, and Hillary's also giving a paper there as well. So what does all that mean? What does that mean to say what are the cognitive processes involved in the mind talking to itself? 
Now I'm going to go back to the paper with Ben that's just come out in Psychological Bulletin. And this is one of our, this is our final diagram from the paper, trying to pull together the different aspects of inner speech as we see. What we have down here is a standard inner speech setup that you would find in a lot of cognitive psychology, for example, the working memory literature. And I won't go into the details, but basically it's the, it's the standard cognitive mechanism for doing inner speech. <coughs> what that lacks is any capacity to be dialogic, to have a conversation between different points of view. So what we thought we needed is some kind of system that would represent agents, other, other uh, participants in the dialogue. In psychology speak, that's known as theory of mind or social cognition. And what that allows is this dialogic interaction between different utterances, effectively. <coughs> in a simpler diagram, I'll come back to this diagram again uh, for other reasons in a, in a minute, but in a simpler diagram, what we've got going on in, in the dialogue is me as the speaker talking to me as the interlocutor and having a nice dialogue, a nice back, back and forth. The, uh, the reason that we can have these two means is because of the way inner speech has developed through, through a person's individual development, particularly through this internalisation of dialogue. The development of the individual allows this dialogic structure where different perspectives can be articulated with each other. And I've called that the open slot, because there is you, and then there's another slot to put somebody else into, to talk to. Okay? And it might be me as interlocutor, it might be my mum, it might be God, it might be a whole range of different things. In Marjorie's case, obviously, we're looking God. To go back to the model of re-expansion, what I want to do now is take that basic idea and bring in this, this, this theme of conversation and expansion. So remember this is the view of voice hearing from the, the old 2004 model, where condensed inner speech gets re-expanded into expanded inner speech, and that's the flashpoint at which voice hearing happens. So let's apply that to this idea about Marjorie as well. So we go from condensed to expanded. We go, uh, re-expansion happens to make that condensed inner speech back into expanded. Imagine Marjorie going about her business day to day. She's doing condensed inner speech. It's a dialogue with God. It's possibly an experience of meditation, possibly a sense of being with God, but not actually having God speaking to you. Okay, it's a sense of God being there as a really intimate, integrated, condensed in the dialogue. Re-expansion happens and God speaks. So she goes into this expanded inner speech where she's having a full-on dialogue with God. I think that's quite an interesting way of thinking about meditation, actually, and I'd love to know what a theological perspective on that would be. And now let's compare Marjorie with a typical voice hearer. And let's suppose that this voice hearer has an internal interlocutor with whom she's engaged in condensed in a dialogue a lot of the time. But again, it's a thoroughly knitted together integrated in a dialogue where the utterances are not fully expanded, are not, they're not heard as if heard out loud. But then, when re-expansion happens, you've got the, the equivalent thing going on, but in this case, it's experienced as an alien intrusive voice. So I think this makes us think differently about how voice hearing might work. <coughs> I think it makes us think differently about how some spiritual experiences might work. 
and as I say, it's, it's um, something I want to explore much further. Going back to Marjorie's book, uh, I chose this, this page in particular because you might notice this tiny little bit of marginalia where somebody has written Dame Julian in the, uh, in the margin of that page because it's the point in the book where Marjorie has an extraordinary encounter. She goes to Norwich because God tells her to go to Norwich and to seek out Julian, the, uh, at that stage, quite famous anchoress. Julian was known for her writings. She wrote about a series of revelations she'd had in 1373, where over the course of a couple of days, she'd had, she'd had a total of 16 revelations, very unusual experiences, in which Christ revealed himself to her. And she wrote about them straight away, and then she thought about it a lot more for another 20 years, wrote about it again in a longer version of the book. And this is known as the Revelations of Divine Love. And this is one example of, of Julian's experience. Again, I'm not going to even try and pronounce it properly, but basically it's saying, I heard a bodily jangling as if it had been two bodies. And to my thinking, jangled at the same time as if they'd been holding a parliament for a great business. And all was soft muttering, and I understood nothing of what they said. And all this was to stir me to despair. This is a particularly lovely quote. Again, Corinne drew my attention to this because it seems to capture the experience that many voice hearers have of hearing indistinct voices conversing. It's where you can't hear what words have been said, but you know that voices are speaking. And Marjorie sought out Julian. They spent a few days together. They, Marjorie was interested in whether her experiences were genuine, whether they were genuine uh, revelations of God. She sought out Julian because Julian had this reputation of knowing, uh, knowing the truth about discernment and knowing how to tell if a voice was true or not. And basically, Julian said to her, Look, they, you know, they, if they feel, if they're making you feel like God is speaking to you, then they, they're real. Trust them. Um, and this happened, and it happened, according to A.C. Spirit, the great medieval scholar, it happened in 1415. So we were very excited about the possibility of this for the 600. 600th anniversary of this extraordinary meeting, which is only only uh, uh, mentioned, it's only recorded in Marjorie's book. There's no other record of the meeting. Julian doesn't write about it. So we wrote to Colin wrote to AC Spirit and said, um, where, did, um, where did this 1415 come from? And he, so far we, we don't have an answer of where it came from. It's very difficult to date the events in Marjorie's book. Uh, it's very difficult to be sure. So it's probably sometime around 1415, sometime around 600 years ago. Okay, final section is thinking about the interrelations between voice hearing in a speech and memory. And this is going to be a bit of a rag bag of our answer questions. Who wants to finish my way? The inner speech problem has, the inner speech model has a huge number of problems and a huge number of gaps that need to be addressed. One that is, is what Sean Gallagher has referred to as the selectivity problem. If inner speech is the basis of auditory verbal hallucinations, then why is it that only some bits of inner speech are misinterpreted as alien voices? Why aren't people who have hear voices hearing voices all the time? Why do they also have some normal inner speech? That's a really tough problem. I think the re-expansion uh, business does go some way to address that question. Of real concern. And it relates to the fact that when you actually ask people, uh, particularly in this case patients with a diagnosis of schizophrenia who hear voices about their own speech, 
they can talk about it in a speech, and they on, on the whole distinguish in a speech from their voices, at least in this kind of interview setting. In, in more everyday contexts, as many of you know, things are much more complex and confused and vague. But we found not a lot of difference, actually, between these patients and uh, non-patient controls. There was a bit less dialogicality in the patients, which is what my model would have predicted, but it wasn't overwhelming. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't very impressive data in any sense. A new study by one of Richard Bentel's um, PhD students, Paolo D'Souza, has actually applied RVISQ varieties of speech questionnaire to patients for the first time. There's a patient with schizophrenia who hear voices. And he's found that patients don't differ on dialogicality, but they do differ on condensed. They show more condensed in a speech than controlled. And I wonder whether this is because the patients, when they're doing a speech, tend to be condensed. Because when they do expanded, they, that is experienced as a voice. When I made that suggestion to Benny, actually got that as a, as a drastic bit of hand waving, and I think he's probably got, got serious um, reasons to, to be concerned about that implication. But I think it kind of fits in a way that when they're doing when they're doing condensed in speech, it's fine, it's not it's typical. But when they switch to doing expanded, that's when they start. But also there's the question here um, of whether the dialogicality issue relates differently to ADHs in healthy control samples, the kind of students that we study and give them these questionnaires and patients. Perhaps it pans out totally differently in those two populations. Some more problems. None of this accounts for evidence that some aspects of, of hearing voices seem to have a right hemisphere basis and they seem to be very different kind of voice, they tend to be brief, abusive voices, not, not very much like the standard inner speech voices. There's a huge amount of evidence now that uh, voices involve intrusions from memory. And another problem with the inner speech model is it doesn't generalise to other modalities. It's not a good theory of hallucinations, I don't think, hallucinations in general, because it doesn't really explain visual hallucinations, tactile hallucinations, and so on. I mean, you could argue that in visual hallucinations there is some kind of equivalent of inner speech that's a kind of inner vision that might get misattributed. It's rather hard to do the same thing with tactile or olfactory hallucinations, for example. So if it is a good model, it's only a good model for hearing voices. So more positively, um, some really interesting work has been done. Um, our collaborator, Ron Bell, argued that Many things fall out if you think about the social dimensions of voice hearing. And he and Sam have been collaborating on a couple of papers where they've been looking at evidence from uh, so-called soundless voices, which is where people report hearing a voice, but they can't actually put any words to it. It doesn't have any auditory quality. But also the uh, voice hearing experiences in deafness that our collaborator, Jay Atkinson, So Sam and Flisty um, and others have been working on the idea that voice hearing is actually better described as a, a hallucination of communication, of being about communicative intentions, more than it is about auditory experiences. Another question is whether the existing models of hearing voices can account for that socialness of, uh, 
the voice hearing that social dimension. I think there's some reasons to think that the inner speech model, uh, dialogic inner speech model at least, does have some of that socialness built in, and so we can perhaps address some of that. There are important implications for the subtyping of voices. If there are different models underlying our people hear voices, there should be different kinds of voices, and we find evidence for that. There's an important developmental question about how the socialness of voices becomes established, whether the voices start off as something that isn't particularly social and agentive, and then becomes more agentive over time, or whether that agency is there from the start. And so really important implications for therapy, and the kind of work that Dave and others have been doing on the CBT, CBT manner that we've been working on. Back to that diagram again, and I just want to think a little bit to show you a little bit of data that relates to how that inner speech system relates to the bacteria in the system. And this is a study that Ben has been leading on, where we were scanning people, in this case we're scanning our own dear Victoria, at the James Cook Memorial Hospital in Hillsborough. We used a new kind of task, we wanted to say, okay, these old tasks have just tried to elicit bog standard inner speech, they haven't thought about the quality of inner speech. What if you ask people to do inner speech that has something of a kind of dialogic quality rather than monologic quality? So over a period of years, we've been developing a task where People are given a scenario such as a visit to your old school. In the dialogic condition, they have to imagine having a conversation with the teacher on that visit. In the monologic condition, they are imagining making a speech to the students. So there's still people around, but there isn't the social, there isn't the engagement with dialogue that you get in the dialogic condition. Meeting the Prime Minister, you're either interviewing the Prime Minister in a dialogic or you're suggesting a new law to the Prime Minister in a monologic condition. And we have to get into some slightly um, technical fMRI territory here. Basically, what you have to do to make sense of uh, the data is you have to take the dialogic activations, you have to take the monologic activations away from the dialogic activations. Okay? And that's what the blue blobs represent. And then we also gave people a theory of mind task, a standard way of assessing people's ability to do social cognition to represent other people's mental states. And they have to do a fancy, fancy subtraction thing as well, but I won't go into the details. Essentially, the yellow stuff is the theory of mind, the theory of mind activation. So when people are doing theory of mind tasks, that's what's, that's what's lighting up. And the really interesting thing for us is that there was what's known as a conjunction. This is in the right hemisphere. And the two areas overlapped at this particular region. And what we're proposing is that that's the bit at which the inner speech network plugs into the theory of mind system and gives you that capacity to generate inner speech but also hold alternative perspectives through that theory of mind capacity and to create that in a dialogue. So if you read this in the Daily Mail, it would say scientists discover that the the bit of your brain that does in a dialogue. That's not what, what's going on here, but it is interesting evidence for what the neural underpinnings of that capacity might be. Uh, quickly was through this st stuff. Um, this is some work that Jane uh, Garrison has been doing in Cambridge, which I think many of you have seen before, where we're looking at reality monitoring capacities in, in this case, patients with schizophrenia from an Australian sample. And we found that 
uh, a capacity for a part of the brain that's involved in reality monitoring. There's a particular morphological feature in that part of the brain that is very strongly connected with whether these patients would show, would have hallucinations or not. So basically, if pa patients who had hallucinations had this fold in the brain much sh shorter than patients who didn't have hallucinations, and it was the only thing that predicted whether these patients would have hallucinations. And the reason I mention that is that even if you have a model which has got inner speech and theory, inner speech and theory of mind in, you've got some other stuff going on as well. So you might have a general capacity to react to, to monitor reality housed in a very different part of the brain that is going to play, play a part as well. But I want to finish by talking about memory. This is also part of our model from the Cycle paper. And it's emerged as a theme um, in what I've said uh, as an important possible reason why people hear voices. But it's also something that's going to be really fascinating because of what I have been thinking about in relation to how memory works. I'm thinking about why the memory of something could re-emerge a very, a very long time later as an intrusive voice. We know there's a very strong association between trauma and voice hearing, something which people scoffed at five or ten years ago, but now, uh, thanks to evidence from uh, Richard Bentham and others, um, is now seen as, as reliable findings. And a there's a model of why some people hear voices which basically says this, there is trauma early in life which re-emerges as intrusive, unpleasant voices much later in life. And my question is, well, how? Because memory doesn't work like that. I talked endlessly with Marius Ron when he was visiting. We had a lovely time when he visited a few years ago about inner speech. And he was very anti the idea of the inner speech model for all sorts of reasons. He would much prefer a trauma memory model. And I would say to him, well, that's fine, Marius. And he would say things like, inner speech might be useful for engaging with your voices, but it doesn't actually explain the voices. But I, and I said, that's fine, Marius. But how does that emotional message from the past, how does that traumatic memory turn into a voice in the head? You've got to have something like an inner speech system. You've got to have some kind of internal language system as part of your explanation for that. And I think we kind of agreed to, yeah, we kind of agreed on that. But still there's this question of how, how memory for voices could possibly work like that. If what you're hearing is a voice hearing, if you're hearing an abusive, unpleasant voice, which is in some way connected to past trauma, that's a very different, that is just not how memory works, okay? And it's certainly not how memory for voices works. Memory for, for voices works in a, in a gist rather than a verbatim way. We're very bad at remembering the specifics of what people say. We do remember the gist of what people say. We take the meaning of what people say. But also we know that memory, any kind of autobiographical memory, memory about events of your own past life, is incredibly valuable, um, malleable and uh, unreliable. But it's also unreliable in an interesting way, in a way that suggests that memories are reconstructed. They're not replications or reproductions of past events. They're reconstructions of past events that are brought together through the involvement of lots and lots of different neural systems and cognitive systems to kind of rehash a reconstruction of that past event, like a kind of collage that's made in the moment when you're called upon to remember. So how does that work? How could that possibly work in relation to voices? I think the idea of voices as reconstructions rather than literal 
replays across the days is a really powerful one because it would help us to understand, for example, why certain aspects of the experience become transformed through memory and over time. And again, I know some of the day mothers are very interested in how can therapy for traumatic memories be adapted to traumatic Some of the stuff that's been going into the manual that those have been working on um, is doing exactly that. It's taking ideas from how memory works and applying it to voice. Okay, that is the end. I've gone through um, all the bits I wanted to cover. There's so many acknowledgements. These are just a few of the people to acknowledge. Um, and you can see it's been a pretty massive team effort. But thank you for listening. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts produced by Hearing the Voice, you can visit our website at hearingthevoice.org or join us on Twitter at Hearing Voice.